Hey, good morning, good afternoon or good evening, depending on when you're watching this edition of Hypnosis Week Live now or indeed listening to it if you're on Apple or one of the other podcast channels. In either case, whether it's underneath the video or the speaker symbol, you can see you will find various website links and other links that will lead you to this week's guests, websites and social media channels and such not. I will introduce him in a moment. Uh, I'm excited to speak to him because um, he's one of the, well I say few, he's one of a handful of uh, hypnotists who are not just clinical hypnotherapists as well as stage hypnotists but have also got an interest and a link and a background with magic and illusion which I myself have. So it's, you know, it's not often you get the total combination of the lot. Um, in 1998, he was a Hypnosis Hall of Fame nominee. In 1996, uh, Hypnosis Business Journal uh, declared him the number one hypnosis trainer in the world. As I say, he does hypnotherapy. He does stage hypnosis. He's got a background and does stuff with magic. He combines these things together in the speaking arena, the corporate training arena, as well as obviously, as you'll see, if you go on YouTube and type his name in, um, there's loads of videos there um, with clips. He also obviously teaches other people the hypnotic skills. So without further ado, please welcome to the show all the way from the US of A, uh, Mr. Scott McFall. How are you doing, sir? Hi there. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, despite these crazy times, just if you're listening to this in months or years to come, it is the 22nd of February 2021. So we're still caught up in the world pandemic. Um, look, let's start with the most obvious, probably to you, uh, the most repetitive one of the questions you probably get asked most on things like this, but it's for the benefit of viewers and listeners who may not have come across you before. And that is, there was a time when Scott wasn't a stage hypnotist, when he wasn't a hypnotherapist, when he wasn't uh, a magician and a hypnosis trainer, all these things. Where, what was your path that led you into these things? How did you get into this crazy world? Well, um, and by the way, do you want to be called Alex or Jonathan? Today. Whichever. Um, you know, most people who find this will probably uh, know me as Jonathan. But that said, more and more people now know thanks to Facebook. And that's what it's all it is. Somebody reported me to Facebook uh, about six years ago and said, Jonathan Royal is not his birth name. Well, no, right. my birth name's Alex William Smith. And right. Facebook, because I couldn't provide a birth certificate with that name on, closed down my personal profile. Wow. So I had to set up a new one as Alex William Smith because otherwise it was just getting closed down every time. And wow. that's why now there's two names out there. But So I answer to anything, really. All right. Well, great. Well, listen, it's it's good to meet you. Uh, I've, I've definitely told the story. ...in a plastic box at the Mayo Clinic. And um, came to hypnosis when I had my first heart surgery when I was 11 years old. And a nurse taught me hypnosis for uh, pain management and distraction when I was in intensive care at St. Mary's in Rochester at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, because of that, you know, and, and the other thing I was doing back then was a lot of, you know, youth theater and so forth, right? And so uh, I started, you know, doing a lot of uh, studying and and was into the performing thing 
I've got like, to ask you, I've just got to butt in and ask. You said you, you're you're 11, having a heart. Um, what, what caused that? Uh, congenital problems in the heart and defects, right. sure birth. The thing is that, uh, you know, when I was 40, I had another heart surgery. I do have an artificial heart valve, artificial aorta, and all of that sort of thing. And so there's a lot of fun in going through those kinds of experiences and learning how you cope with them, you know, whether it's uh, going into denial or getting, you know, irritated as hell or, you know, the various things that happen and, and then growing up and maturely handling them and hypnosis and various kinds of state of mind control uh, certainly can shorten your maturity drama. Let's put it that way. So I, I've always had a, an interest in it. And, uh, you know, I, I started working when I got out of high school. I was going to Moorhead State. I didn't really have that much interest in class. And I was uh, working at a place called the Oldenburg Clinic doing clinical hypnosis. Uh, and uh, back then we were you know, working in just about whatever people wanted help with. And I was also, you know, even before I was really legal to do so, I was performing in, you know, clubs and bars doing stage hypnosis and comedy uh, and what. Eventually, uh, I got a little more serious about academics. I went to a now defunct program, uh, transferred all my credits out and finished at AIH under uh, Richard Neves and uh, so forth at American Institute of Hypnotherapy, which, of course, is now a defunct program, but it was a very good program in its day. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, had all kinds of interests. You might like this. Um, there's an old Ormond, Ormond McGill. yeah. And this is a very interesting vintage brochure where the testimonials are from famous actors and actresses, John Wayne, Hedy Lamar, all kinds of people. And of course, Ormond was nice enough to write the little foreword to my training books years ago. And so I started enjoying, started enjoying meeting lots of hypnotists all over the country and training on the East Coast and the West Coast and various stuff. Um, the psych advisor to, uh, my team now, uh, a guy named Dr. Daniel Burrow, you know, he did, he did his, uh, doctoral thesis on Erickson and, uh, he now spends all of his time teaching, you know, what we teach. And it's fascinating how, like, for instance, in your country, you know, Erickson is seen a certain way and it, and I, you know, I love Ericksonian stuff. We've taught a lot of it for years, but it's kind of an irony, isn't it? That, uh, it's now seen as some kind of sacred cow or myth. Well, it's by those people who don't bother doing the right research. Mm -hmm. And I mean, my views on Ericsson, which are based on his own, his own confessions, I will state that beforehand, as in stuff he wrote himself and printed in his own uh, journal that he published. Mm -hmm. So this isn't conjecture, this is not conspiracy. But well, based on what he published himself, my opinion of Ericsson is that he was a twisted, deluded, perverted, uh, sick, um, narcissistic, failed stage hypnotist mentality who, as a therapist, was actually crap and justified his failures as successes when in actual fact... Um, Anyone who totally ignores Ericsson training and goes about things a different way can get exactly the same results. He claimed to have got far quicker, far more consistently and without humiliating the clients as he often took great enjoyment in doing by his own admission in his own publications. Let me let me uh, let me uh, talk about the other side of that coin just for the fun of it. Um, yeah, okay. uh, 
there, there are some good things about what he did. One really good thing is he understood the concept of the ego down and the ego up strategy, for example. Um, he also uh, understood handling people differently. Two people that trained with him, Dot Feldman and Kay Grask, were in my student group for three years. They're also the people that produced the first NLP seminars here in the States, uh, you know, uh, promoting uh, Bandler and Grinder back in the day. They were close friends with uh, Virginia Satir, who was the other model for NLP, mm -hmm. uh, Satir and Erickson at the time. And, you know, they, they were fascinating in that they uh, came to three years worth of my workshops uh, because of what they were getting out of that process. And it was, it was really fun to watch Dot and Kay's views of Erickson and Satir. Um, my view of the situation with um, all of those of us who have had issues is there is a certain kind of genius that you get from being stuck. Uh, Erickson did have polio twice. And in having polio twice, he did get a, like a, let's call it a, a broad view of something. Because when you're stuck observing, you get a broad view. And, you know, it, it was fascinating to note, I believe there's one really important book on Erickson, and only one. And it's My Voice Will Go With You. It's the only one that has See, I think that's crap. Yeah, Honestly, I, I mean, in personal opinion, that's what this show is about, because there'll be people sat there shouting at the screen going, I totally agree with Scott, you evil Beelzebub royal saying these things. And then there might be people agreeing with me, and then there'll be people in the middle, and that's what this is all about. I mean, I personally, would, I, would I begin, think... Just, I would begin to suggest yeah. that, uh, that there are there are great many values in taking the counterpoint to just about every person, just about every expert. So I, I, I absolutely value uh, the, the idea of looking at things from many angles. And I think there are a lot of roads to get to a successful client. I certainly don't think that, uh, I think as a matter of fact, it's a good idea to have five or six roads to get to the same outcome or success with a client. I and agree. Maybe I just think it should be done in an ethical manner. And most of what Erickson did was completely wholly unethical and borderline illegal if you read his own uh, own explanations of what he did in his own journal. Oh, we found it highly amusing to take psychiatric patients and put them at a 45 degree angle, leaning by their head against the wall and leave them for hours in a stressed position. He found it absolutely hilarious to tell the woman who wouldn't have sex with her husband to come in shorter and shorter skirts to every session and then point out to her at the end, apparently for her therapeutic benefit, that that proves she could now go and not have to be repressed with her husband. But in truth, the way he writes it up, it's obvious he was taking a perverse delight in the well, power let's, feeling let's, of it. Let's, let's look at that for a moment. Let's, let's look at that for a moment. Um, I, would, I would begin to suggest that you would be an excellent attorney. And, you know, you have a way of thinking about things where you, you do have a I'm premise. Just quoting, no, I'm just quoting his own words. He, he boasts with a quite obvious a, uh, have... egotistical pride of perversion about doing these things and how he laughed about them to other members of staff in the psychiatric. Well, think class. about this idea for a moment. Um, I, I actually see issues in Erickson's work very differently than you do. Uh, but I would say this, um, there, there are a couple of things to consider. One of the things to consider is that one smart thing about Satir and him is that they understood that the state of mind was significantly more important than logic or content. 
So the premise, a knowledge of content is not required in order to facilitate behavior change, comes from watching Satir and comes from watching Erickson. And, and the truth is that their ability to chunk up and do something entirely different or uh, take a state a different direction, I would call that useful. And in the tens of thousands of clients that I saw in the seven locations that I ran or the hundreds and hundreds of hypnotists I've trained or all the stuff that I've done, I can tell you that without modeling that thinking, most very highly educated people are too detailed, too into deductive reasoning and far too easily manipulated by their sympathies to actually see the context of what's happening with the client what the real secondary benefit of what they're doing happens to be, or uh, the ability to uh, back up and see the whole painting instead of getting stuck on one point that the person made, for example. So there, there are flexibility drills in studying and understanding how those people saw a scenario. Uh, do I think that there are a lot of other ways to get to the same goal? I agree with you 100%. 100% on that there are a lot of roads to the same outcome with the client. And you can have just as great a result in different ways. You can have a just as great a result doing something direct. You can have just as great a result doing just sim simple rehearsal of new behavior. You can have tons of ways to get the same result. I think you're right on with that point. Um, his motives or the potential gloating that you're talking about, you know, the, the gloating that you're referring to, um, the people that I knew who knew him do not talk about him in that way. But I do believe that the writings that you're talking about may absolutely look that way, may absolutely look that way. So, I, you know, I agree with you in that point. And I, and I will also make this point. The, the most important story in that book. To understand the one thing that he saw that other people weren't good at is the maturity drama in the story. I don't have to. And the point of that maturity drama is, you know, a lot of people are unaware. You know, I refer to it as that change is change all works in the same as the stages of grief. First, you don't know what's happening. Then you go into anger. Then you go into denial. Then you go into bargaining and only wanting to accept part of it. Then it's sad. Then you finally get to acceptance. He was very good at understanding the concept of that the person wouldn't adapt if they didn't know their previous behavior was failing them. He was pretty good at that. And even if everything you're saying is true, even if everything you're saying is 100% true, there's a pearl of wisdom in that magical genius of his awareness. And, and you see it in his handling of his daughter during the story, I don't have to, when she knocked the paper out of her mom's hand and he uh, was wheelchair bound at the time, you know, he had her wheeled to the bed and he got a hold of her foot and she'd go, wet woos, wet woos, and he'd go, I don't have to. And then they'd switch and switch. And he talks about how it took a long time for her to adapt to go, I'll give the paper back to mommy. Well, you don't have to. And he, him having that game with her until she actually goes, I want to give the paper back to mommy. I want to tell mommy I'm sorry, where he gets the child all the way to desire. So there's a bell curve in there that's incredibly brilliant with regard to maturity drama and how it works in people and how the timing of their having an epiphany or a realization works. Um, so I 100% agree that gloating over the states of mind someone else is going through would be a mistake. I understand why you're saying that. 
And if those writings uh, were the only evidence, I might 100% agree with you. I do have evidence from the people. Trouble, who, the trouble is the evidence, the other evidence that exists, uh, and the book I draw people's attention to is called Beyond Ericsson, um, the Emperor of Hypnosis, referring to the Emperor's News Clause story uh, by a gentleman called Alexander, which is A-L-E-X, first name, second name is T-S-A-N-D-E-R, right. um, which is written entirely by somebody who really can't do the skills. So the thing is that we've got so many that, that really can't do the skills that that individual was doing. And it's, it's no, sort that's, of- that's nonsense. The person who's written that book is a highly successful uh, clinical hypnotherapist and stage hypnotist. And, mm-hmm. and they're quoting all Erickson's works. What I'm saying is that book gives the issue numbers of the periodicals, tells you what page to look at, gives you the direct quotes about Erickson, Lies, damn lies, and statistics there, young man. And I'll tell you what. When go, go, go and read his own periodicals. Erickson, what Erickson's I'm, own words, exposing for what he was. What I'm saying to you is outcome-based, and what you're saying to me is forensic. All right, outcome-based is that it took him bloody weeks to achieve what a skilled therapist can do in a single hour. You're still forensic. There are times when a skilled That's therapist... That's not forensic. If you set things up right... And you can consistently get a result in an hour. Why would anyone hold up a guy who took weeks for the same result as being good? I understand that you do this routine. I'm trying to tell you that there's an outcome that you can have in a student to make a point for their further growth. Or we can be doing the standard promo thing to say, you know, it's it's a standard everyday ordinary press strategy to say, uh, let me let me slay the sacred cow. It's a marketing ploy. And sometimes that marketing ploy is good, and sometimes it's not good. But what I don't want to do uh, with any new student, new client, or person watching today is accidentally take them and, and take them to a fork in a road. I want them to integrate the ideas and have multiple choice. My goal is not to send them directive hypnosis and non-directive hypnosis. And in- well, just to clarify, I think you should study them all. Yeah, I've just, I've just clarified. Despite... What I'm saying here and the evidence of him being a fraud, a charlatan, a pervert and a con man, um, that's not to say you shouldn't study it because you should so you can come to your own conclusions. Backtrack a minute. Backtrack a minute. So recognize that what you're doing is very similar to politics. And what I'm doing is trying to take the politics out of it. And I'm doing that for the outcome of people who are learning to be great hypnotists. I I hear you that you should study them all, but while you said you should study them all, you also attached a values alignment strategy to it. So you salted the cut about, for instance, finding a gem within the Erickson concept, which is fine, man, it's just great. Uh, And you're very good at the strategies you're doing and the cases you're making, that's true. Uh, However, what, what I'm thinking about is watching that person go into the field and handle things a certain way. We could do the same game with Jung, Freud, every psych person, half of the professors at the university closest to you, and we'd still be right. So the point is to imagine that this is some sort of fascinating thing that these people are human. Well, it turns out they're human. There is no Santa Claus. There is no Easter Bunny. As it turns out, this is not a shock. I'm shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on in here. So remember that the idea here is that perhaps... 
we could we could fall in love with the outcome and the outcome for those people who are going to be professionals who are who might be starting out and there could be all kinds of veterans watching this there could be brilliant veterans watching this who already have their act together completely and perhaps the guy that wrote the book you mentioned also has his act together completely however it is still a very standard publishing maneuver to slay the sacred cow it's very normal as a matter of fact it's a regular credibility move done in setting up a seminar so uh, I've seen that be wise. For example, uh, vaccinating against people going down the wrong road, I think, is a righteous move. I think it's a righteous move. And perhaps that's the main intent of what you th think is happening in that conversation, is that you're wanting to vaccinate against people going down the wrong road. And maybe uh, I think there's there's more um, there there's more power, perhaps, in um, letting the person have the experience at the seminar where the the technique that you like the most just works better or uh you, you teach them both and have them find out by discovery in the way that their application phase at the seminar works that one of them works better and i think that discovery can be really powerful um i feel the same way that you feel about this by the way about several ways that analysis works i find analysis Analysis, spell A-N-A-L-Y-S-I-S. It starts with anal, A-N-A-L. It's a big clue <laughs> to the fact it's full of shit. And it's mind rape, as I like to refer to it, as completely unnecessary. Actually right. makes matters worse, study show. Right. Well, and that's true. And, and the thing is that that's one of the reasons why Dr. Burroughs works in our team, is he had enough psych experience to be aware that he was getting better outcomes this way, right? He, he lived them both. He was in both worlds. Mm -hmm. So it's not a hypothetical thing or a defensive thing with him. He's really okay in each space, right? But what's happening over here in our world is a lot of the time the boards are getting so restrictive that people are having to, highly educated people are having to go to personal coaching because their practices are too tight in the way the boards are setting things up for them to even help their clients. Mm -hmm. And that's not true in every state or every jurisdiction. But it, it can become true. And, and it becomes true because of something called that's really professional jealousy. There's a yeah. professional jealousy and it starts to get weird. So like as you and I are talking, we've been in the business long enough to have this debate. We can like each other and totally disagree. You know, like, two, like two boxers having dinner after the bout. It's no big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And but I've seen incredible professional jealousy in your country. The, the, the competition can be just ludicrous. I've seen some amazing difficulty teaching because of what I would call a cult like belief. And I think that's probably why you're so passionate about the way you express this, because the beliefs when people get them are almost cult like. Jungian, Capucinian, uh, Eric. Yeah. And it, 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 that's an element without a doubt. I mean, it, it, it's worse than that. And it probably is. Well, it is worldwide. What absolutely brings me to the point of severe anger, not right this second, but it does when I see it again and again, is that 99% of people out there running courses are going, oh, look, basic hypnosis course. Now you've done that. You've got to do this uh, 
practitioner course. Now you're going to do the advanced practitioner course. And now you know what, while you're at it, now we've got you into the uh, multi-level marketing scheme. It's even more so in NLP, but it happens in hypnosis. Now do you train a trainer. Now go out there and start teaching people when you've done F all in the yeah. real world yourself. I've ranted about that for 30 years, that there's no, there are people out there who are advanced trainers who've literally never had a client. That's really true. Yeah. That's really true. And it, you know, and yeah, yeah, I, I, over the years, I've sort of come down off of my initial irritation about it, because after all, it has made me an enormous amount of money. And, <laughs> and I'm living on the waterfront, and I'm just fine. And, and the thing is that, you know, yeah, but the thing is, you've had not just one therapy, you've had a chain of therapy practices. I've had You're not one of these people going out there doing that. You've actually done it in the real world. That's the unique selling proposition that I had. And even some of my competitors who became co-teachers over the years, you know, uh, some of them who hate me and some of them who love me. But one of the things that really we all agreed on is I had more clients live in the way that things were working back then. And it does make a difference, mm. you know. So the thing that happens with this sacred cow deal is people will become very defensive when you're teaching them. And um, uh, while I'm talking to you and I'm, I'm watching you, um, you know, I'm not sure how old you are, but I'm, I'm seeing a lot of the feelings that I had around 1995 to 2005, you know, and... This physical plane, I would be, I'm currently 45, 46 this year, but just to clarify, I was treating clients professionally, as in most days of the week, since 1989 when I was 14. Right, that's awesome. And so the, the thing that I'm, I'm looking at with, and I did notice that you've had a, a lot of parallel experiences in performing and in enjoying promotion and all of the things that you're good at, and you're good at a lot of things. Um, the mood that I've developed lately is to move a little closer to the way Orman saw it and the way that perhaps Richard Neves saw it. Well, how do you think Orman saw it? That'd be an interesting one. I'd love to know how, um, how honest he got with you because it was a pretty magic convention in England in about 
Sorry, I'm sorry. That's a misquote. He said, no one has ever hypnotized anyone. Everyone hypnotizes themselves. There's no hypnotist that ever hypnotizes anyone. But there's there's a... Uh, or Orman was a... Funny that, uh, I did an interview with Tom Silver not so long ago. I, I, I asked Tom the same thing. And Tom admitted that deep down, uh, Orman knew it was basically just placebo and nonsense. Well, I... I Placebo is the same thing as saying that somebody believes something. So to add the word nonsense to that, I disagree with. You know, Tom Silver and I were headliners uh, many years ago. That's Tom, not true, is it? Tom, placebo doesn't, per, people don't have to believe in something for the placebo effect to be triggered. Well, we'll get back to that. I blatantly disagree with that also. Tom Silver and I were both headliners at the National Guild of Hypnotists convention many years ago, and Orman was in the audience with me that day, and he's, and Tom spent a lot of time with Orman. That's absolutely mm -hmm. true. And he is, um, you know, he's a very good entertainer. He, he was in front of a lot of great people, Tom was. Um, and, you know, I didn't have the conversation you had with Tom, and I didn't see the interview, so I'm not going to pretend to know what Tom said. Well, just give me one sentence then, just to clarify, so that what's the total context on what... Tom and me spoke about. It's another Hypnosis Week episode on hypnosisweek.com. And that is the key, that hypnosis doesn't exist. It's purely suggestion. It is not what 99.9.9% recurring of hypnosis trainers say it is. And that definitely includes pretty much everyone that trains for the National Guild of Hypnotists. Um, it is purely suggestion and placebo and emotional and psychological manipulation, which are the keys to mind control. That's Kreskin's view as well. That was Kreskin's view. Well, I was beginning it's, to suggest that it's Tom Silver's as well now. I'm curious. Can you remember a time when you agreed with something in a row? Pardon? Can you agree? Well, can, tell me what your favorite thing to do in hypnosis is that makes you happy. What makes you happy when you're doing hypnosis? When they pay. Mm-hmm. And what makes you happy and what makes me happy don't match. Don't have so to. what it doesn't alter why and how it works, or does it? Well, it can, actually. The the way something is done can alter how it works. Absolutely. No, it the can't. Way... You see, you turn the key in a car, yeah? The engine works the way it was designed by the person who made that engine. It doesn't matter how you believe or understand that engine to work, what you may or may think correctly or incorrectly, it works the way it was designed to work, assuming it's not broken down. Excellent example. You win. But no, it, I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're doing a, kind of a mixed metaphor game where you're talking about engineering, and behavior has more options or choices than engineering. It has multiple engineering concepts at once. It's a different kind of moving target than that. And I understand the solidity of the example you're giving, and it could even help someone in a, in a wait session making them see cause and effect. But uh, if you back up away from that painting a little bit, you're going to see some differences between human behavior and that engineering as well. And I'm sure that what you're doing is working great. I'm sure it's working awesome. Uh, I do it differently. I, I have a different You approach. don't. You think you do. But at the end of the day, all you're doing is triggering I'm, the placebo and I'm, giving clients permission and an excuse to change. It's excellent that as a hypnotist, you learn to repeat yourself. But I do it differently. So if, if okay, you, so tell me if you do it differently. Tell me why, because you, you clearly believe this. Tell me why 
uh, what there is that you've ever helped a client do that they couldn't have done themselves if it wasn't exactly. No, but your conclusion, your, your extrapolation of that point goes down a rabbit hole that has to do with your feeling of competition. And, and I see that. And no, it's awesome. No, 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 no. We all do it the same way. So there is no competition. Clients, the only reason clients need a therapist is so they've I'm got glad, a safety guard when glad, they leave us I'm glad to be able to, to say we needed the therapist. Glad to see that you learn to really respect fully the world that's being described to you long enough to see the differences. I'm glad to see that you have the patience to do that. So remember that when when you're doing this, you're having this experience that you've had, and it's obviously very very thorough, and it started very young, and you've been taking positions since you were 14, and I definitely make this same kind of thing happen to my mind too. Uh, but really, um, there there are different approaches. There's a different way that Kilboyne behaved than the way that Orman behaved, and there's a different way that Orman behaved than Al Krasner behaved, and there's a different way that Al Krasner behaved than Peter Ravine behaved, and, and so on, and so on. And the percentage of people that they help and which type of people respond to them change with each approach. And then there's the flexibility to sort of play them all. So whether it's that the client is into freedom, security, competency, belonging, or self-expression, the watching and the taking in of the whole picture, there's a huge difference and certainly, uh, the generalization that, uh, you know, uh, the concept of understanding the placebo effect is very important. Wrote tons of articles on it early in my career. But the, the reality is that our communication skills as a hypnotist are fully dependent upon our ability to be what has to happen across from us. And that the idea of accidentally getting a little bit too into deductive reasoning or our competency or how we're going to intellectualize that might not be in our best interest. Um, I know that you are very successful in what you're doing and I know that you're excellent at what you're doing. However, I would still take a different position or a different view than the one you're, you're currently espousing. And I'm sure that and that's great because that's going to be very educational for the people who are watching and listening. So please expand on that. Why isn't it just placebo? Why isn't it? Give us some actual proof. I believe in the premise of your question. So as you force the question, I'm forced to go a different direction. When when you realize that belief, you know, if we say hypnosis is in the is the induction is simply the induction of belief through suggestion. It's that simple. I wouldn't say it's the induction. It's the manipulation of belief. Well, you love From one that. form to another, isn't it? Yeah, you love that word. But I would begin to suggest that that sometimes uh, it doesn't even require manipulation at all. There's manipulation going on whether you say anything verbally or not. The moment they book a session with you, they're okay. already being manipulated there's through no, nonverbal suggestion. There's no doubt that that's true. But much much like you would say, lug nut, wheel, tire, fender, Ferrari, cars, boats, planes, trains, cars, transportation. At some point, you can't fall in love with the term and go manipulation lug nut, manipulation lug nut, manipulation lug nut. At some point, you have to go wheel, tire, fender, car, boats, planes, trains, cars, transportation. And we have to get a more general view of what the hell we're talking about than let's talk about this electron or molecule or proton. At some point, we've got to back up and see the whole painting, not that is oil, all painting, oil-based paintings. 
this banana is yellow. Well, at some point, we're not in propositional and predicate logic class. We're in watching and being in sensory acuity of what's actually happening in front of us. And as we do that, we realize that our agenda or the agenda of that client is frequently uh, more broad than we thought it was. And certainly through experience, sometimes that learning is subconscious. Sometimes the hypnotist like yourself, when you're working with clients, you're a very different person than when you're talking to the other hypnotists. When you're with the clients and you're helping them and that's all going on, you're this caring, benevolent figure who's doing these wonderful, benevolent things and you're helping them. When oh, you're doing trust me, I'm not. Well, regardless. I tell them to get off the raffin house and sort themselves out and actually tell them they could have done it themselves. We but, you know, know, we'll go through this pantomime ritual so that you can go away. And when people say to you, John, why didn't you stop taking cocaine earlier? Because if it was that bloody easy, why didn't you do it years ago rather than wasting your life? Rather than ending up relapsing and having to blame themselves, they can go... I hadn't found the therapist at that point. Having them level is the same exact thing that Virginia Satir taught, as opposed to blaming or placating or distracting or all those things. And leveling is a standard step in therapeutics, and certainly we all do. Noticed at no point earlier did I, I um, accuse Virginia Satir of being a fraud. Well, remember this. I didn't because a lot of uh, techniques on things actually have complete relevance to what we do. So that's true, and I would also I would also point out that uh, your passion is is very uh, very very good. You're very passionate, but again, you're different when you're working with clients than you are when dealing with the other hypnotists. Your respect for your clients and your respect for your clients' model of the world is much higher than perhaps. I don't, I don't have much respect for them. I tell them that they're a bunch of attention-seeking footwits who just couldn't can't get off their ass for themselves, and they just need a bloody permission to change, excuse to change. So they can go. I didn't change before because I hadn't found this therapist. I had to go through that, which absolves them of any self-blame, shame, guilt, and regret for not having got off their ass and done it themselves, because they can tell other people they weren't capable of doing it themselves. That's what we do as therapists. That is one of the things we do. That's absolutely true. And you're very passionate about that one, obviously. You're very passionate about that one. Microphone device just, excuse me one second. Microphone device changed to, I know it's changed back again. God knows, I must have a loose lead in my computer. It's all right, Lord. As long as you can hear me, it means it's recording. So I would begin to say, though, I've really enjoyed this. I have one issue, though, in that I'm teaching stage hypnosis in Canada by Zoom today. And I'd set aside uh, this time and I'm starting to get to where I'm pretty close. So do you have any final questions at all or anything you're thinking? Well, let, yeah, just they will find links below to hypnosisconnection.com, successtrainingandentertainment.com, YouTube where there's videos below, some fantastic videos on there. Um, can you just um, give people a bit of insight into, could you run all manner of different courses? Uh, and you'll see when you go and visit Scott's links, he's got excellent feedback. And one thing that should, um, I think, be considered by anyone watching or listening to this is, is how uh, open to actually having a debate Scott is, which in itself shows open-mindedness and therefore should be a nice big um, signpost of this is somebody worth investigating more and going and checking out what they've got. But can you tell them a bit about the kind of stuff uh, you offer through your site, Scott? Even when people come to courses, what most people who are doing large businesses or large careers do is mentorship. They're usually in some type of personal coaching. They have a one-on-one -on -one relationship. That's really how 
my business model tends to work and has for the last 30 years. And uh, I only take 40 a year. Um, so, you know, I, I do a lot of various courses and I help all of the trainers that I happen to train. Like I'll fly in and help to teach or whatever. But we have quite a few schools in the United States that are run by my past students uh, and various uh, different types of schools. Some of them are, you know, state licensed. Some people are running just seminar companies and so on. And so my primary uh, role is helping those people operate their businesses. My secondary role is taking a uh, few clients a year that I'm also still personal coaching. Um, and I still do a few shows myself and whatnot, although I don't tour anymore. And with the uh, coaching, you also teach them how to grow the business, don't you? Because that's very important. A lot of courses don't do that. But with your success of having had chains of rather than a therapy practice, you've had a chain of them, haven't you? Yeah. And we also we also because of all of the centers that are in our group, we have real time tracking of online and offline marketing internationally. And so we, we really have the ability to share that with people who come in. That's true. But um, I'm, I'm more worried now about whether or not people are good at their job. Uh, we, we know how to produce clients. Uh, it's actually a bigger challenge to make sure that the people that are in the centers are good at their job. Um, if they are, you know, the, when, when you deserve to succeed, the truth is you do. And when you deserve to succeed and the clients are happy overall, then you do. And sometimes people need a little more behavior flexibility, kind of like an acting coach to find their way in rehearsing how they're going to handle it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I like the fact that you are no nonsense in the way that you handle things. Like, I know you want to cut to the chase. I like that about you. It's, it's very fascinating. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's something a lot of people cannot do. They cannot confront the elephant in the room, let's say. So you're confronting the elephant in the room strategy is obviously very good. Uh, and, and the other things that I'm talking about really are students and people being aware of the, thing, the, the steps of dynamics that have to happen after that. I'm going to ask you one more question because I know we're running out, we're getting close to the end uh, of uh, things. You also do magic as well. You've got a background in that. How useful um, did you find your background in magic and understanding of, obviously with magic it's misdirection, making people, for example, think they've seen something they haven't or not see something that has taken place or, you know, um, combining that into hypnosis. I hear you. Uh, well, my my corporate speaking and my life coaching uh, seminars are called perceptioneering. And those perceptioneering courses have to do with what we learn as magicians about how much we are not perceiving going through the day, of course. And uh, it's a wonderful way to make those points. And many, many people before me have used it to make those points. You know, this is one where I'm, I'm just one of the Johnny Appleseeds of this point using that way of doing it. But it's, it's a great, great way to make the point. And so I found it wonderfully useful. Um, and I find that people from magic often are not as aware of the various, uh, let's say, attributes of hypnosis as they could be, because they all see it as a uh, sucker gag, the way that sucker gags are seen in magic. They all see it as, you know, they've got a, an intellectual way of looking at it. So I find it fascinating teaching magicians hypnosis, which I've definitely done a lot. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that knowing 
how perception functions, even from the NLP point of view or from the magic point of view, uh, understanding what the client is just not able to see at all and how to get them to see it is is it's good to have it in your noggin. And I think magic really does accomplish that. I mean, I'm a I'm a. As a magician, I'm like a cover band. You know, I've only got like maybe three bits that I've ever designed completely myself. Almost everything I do is like a cover band, you know, and I love. There's the nothing whole... wrong with that. There's some excellent cover bands. Yeah, that's right. And I adore magic in that way. And I'm fine with that role. I love it. You know, I have a few things that we do that that I did or the, the routines develop over the years and become more original. But I am proud of being a magic cover brand. I don't find it bad at all. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the interview. Uh, thanks for spending the time with me. And thanks for having the debate back and forth, man. Thank fun. you. Are there any other websites, by the way, that I need to put the links to underneath other than hypnosisconnection.com, success, training and entertainment.com? That's all great. And I really appreciate it, man. Uh, enjoy yourselves, folks. Have fun. Go check out his websites. Um, if you can put up with my line of questioning, then believe me, worth checking out. Nice one, Scott. You take care. You too, man. Good to meet you. Bye-bye.